Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. We'll be in Mark chapter 6 today, starting in verse 30. I'm going to cover as much ground as we can. Um, but uh, welcome to Grace. While you're turning over there to Mark chapter 6, a couple of things I want to mention to you. You may have seen the advertisements as you were coming in, and we'll have a few more next week. But for, for the no more experience, the no more experience, you might have saw that when you were walking in. That essentially is a thing we're partnering with the Abide community of churches um, to try, really to try to snuff out uh, orphanism in Highlands County, if that's a word. To snuff out um, familyless children. And the No More Experience is something that uh, South Oak of Lake Placid is waving the banner of. First Baptist of Sebring is hosting and the rest of us are partnering with and just encouraging our church family to be a part of that. It's going to happen on a Sunday morning. It is going to be a Sunday morning worship service. It's going to be a a time in the Word of God and a time hearing testimony of how God has been transforming people's lives through foster care and adoption. And it'll be happening on May 15th at First Baptist Sebring at 9 and 11. So you can attend one here and attend one there, or if you aren't sure which one, whether to go here or there, just go there. Be a part of that experience. Um, It's something we believe in. We're partnering with the Tony Dungy All-Star Dad Foundation for this experience, and so I hope that those of you that that kind of pricks a place in your heart, that you go be a a part of that on um, May 15th, either 9 or 11 a.m. at First Baptist Sebring. Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. I just saw Jackie walking out, Natalie sitting over there. Good gosh, when you girls open your mouth, heaven touches earth every time. I don't know how that happens. And Dave, he's all right, too. Dave's all right, too. Uh, we're thankful for you. But no, Pastor Dave, your leadership and the team that God is using to build, uh, building through you, we're grateful for that. Thank you all for leading us and worship this morning. And um, hey, um, be, uh, well, Dave uh, said something about it uh, during the service, but be praying for Pastor Chris. Uh, crazy story that has nothing to do with the sermon. This is crazy right here. Um, so Pastor Chris and his family, they, they had a family member who was getting married in Spain, okay? So they had to suffer for Jesus and go to Europe as a family. So they went to Spain, and while you're over there, it's cheaper to visit everything else while you're there. So they went and did the wedding in Spain, then they went and spent some time in London, and then they finished up their trip in Paris. And so they were in Paris at the end of their trip, and before you get on a plane to come back to the United States, the whole family has to be COVID tested, and the whole family tested negative, except for Chris. (laughs) Chris, I'm sure he's watching online this morning, so Chris is lost in Paris. He is literally... Two miles from the airport, he feels fine. He's got like a sniffle, but he tested COVID positive. So he's stuck in Paris by himself right now. We love you, Pastor Chris. Send us some love overseas to you this morning. I talked to him yesterday. It's like, you know, in quarantine for them over there is still seven to 10 days. So he's thinking, gosh, what am I going to do for the next seven to 10 days? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's Ubering to a different pharmacy every day to be tested again until he gets his negative test and then he's getting on a plane and coming back to the States. So we're praying for our boy. We miss you, man. We're praying for you over there as he's camped out in his hotel room with chips and 
cheese sticks, and we miss that guy. I'll be praying for him. Um, uh, big weekend for me. I turned 37. Ain't getting no younger. Yeah, yesterday was my 37th birthday, but my, my birthday every year also marks my anniversary of being here at Grace Bible. So if some of y'all have heard people say happy anniversary to me, they weren't talking about me and Ansley. Me and Ansley got married in February. But uh, I uh, turned 37 yesterday, and that also marked being here as a part of the GBC staff for 14 years. Can you believe that? That's a long time. It's like, it's almost half of my life I've been with you people. And it's been a pleasure. I'm so grateful for the part that you played in me and Ansley's story and just being involved in our lives. And we consider it a real honor and a privilege to be just a small part of your story and your journey with one another and your relationship with God. And so I, I, I love being here at this church. I love what this church is about. Uh, Pastor Cameron, for example, is in Okeechobee serving um, Oakview Baptist Church down there today. Uh, we'll, we'll be serving different churches all throughout our community throughout the summer. It'll just be a few weeks when we get a chance to transition Oakview Baptist to their new pastor, and we won't have one of our team members down there every week uh, serving them. But I just, I love what Grace is about. I love the influence it has in the community for the gospel, and I'm so grateful because you guys are the ones that make it special. Uh, so thanks for being a part of this sweet and unique gospel movement right here through Grace Bible Church. Truly, like, uh, I love the Capital C Church. I love the kingdom of God and how it works right here in the heartland. But it is so unique and special that we get to be a part of this specific church family. Um, this, this church has, has extraordinary influence for the kingdom of God all throughout the heartland. And I'm so grateful that you guys continue to just lean into the word of God, be transformed it, and by it and invite other people to be transformed right along with you. So um, hopefully by now you're in Mark chapter <clears throat> 6 as we're getting into the life and ministry of Jesus in a very uh, famous miracle, actually, that Jesus performed. We might cover two of them today, depending on how much time we have, but a very famous moment in Jesus' life where he feeds the 5,000. And just so you know, we'll see at the end of this story um, that 5,000 men were fed that day. And just so you know, in these ancient texts, when it, when it counts out 5,000 men, that means that there were 5,000 grown men in the crowd that day, but it hadn't counted the fact that there were probably 10 or 15,000 women and children that were also a part of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus really fed about 20,000 on that particular day. And as we are learning and growing how to biblically answer the question of who we say Jesus Christ is, the real version of God on earth, uh, being lived out in person, and we get to observe him through his word. Let's step into this very famous story and see what we can learn about this Jesus and who he really is, not only as king, but who he is for us in our lives and in our story. And Mark chapter 6, verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. If you remember last week, we finished up with Jesus sending out the disciples two by two. This was the first time that his disciples had gone on to do ministry without Jesus with them. This was an exciting but terrifying moment. And they didn't travel as a group of 12. Jesus stayed behind and sent them out two by two. So they were in pairs. God, uh, Jesus had conferred upon him, them his authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons. But he had told them while they were going doing that work, 
that they were meant to preach the gospel and invite people into repentance, that they would change their mind and believe the good news of the glory of God, that the kingdom of heaven was here and that it was here in Jesus Christ. So they returned from this incredible journey, like a bunch of kids finally coming home to tell daddy what happened at school that day. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all about it, every detail that happened on what they had done and taught. And he said to them, man, I bet y'all must be tired. It's been an exhausting journey, this first experience of them being out by themselves. So he says, you know what, let's come away by yourselves, just the 12 of you and me, and let's go to a desolate place. Say desolate place. Now they needed to go to a desolate place because their popularity was at a fevered pitch at this point. Everywhere that the disciples went or Jesus went or they all went together, people knew who they were. They had heard about them and what God had been doing through their life and ministry. So for them to get a chance to kind of decompress, to debrief, they were going to have to go to a desolate place. Say desolate place. And he said, let's go to a desolate place so we can rest for a while. What was the goal? They wanted to rest. They needed some rest. It was exhausting doing the work of ministry day in and day out as a pair, just trusting God to work in and through them to see their communities transformed for the gospel. So they went away to a desolate place to rest for a while. Say rest. And many were coming and going, and because of that, they had not even had the leisure to eat. So now we see a second reason why they're going to a desolate place. They needed to get some rest, and they also needed something to eat. Yeah, they were tired and they were hungry, just like we would have been after a journey like what they had been on and all the travel. And so they went away in the boat to the desolate place by themselves. You think, you think the Bible is trying to convince us of something? They are trying to get away by themselves in a boat, desolate place. It said it twice. They're trying to get some space so they can rest and so they can eat. <laughs> but verse 33 says that many saw them going and many recognized them, and those people ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them to the desolate place. So here they are sailing down the shoreline in the boat trying to get away from the crowd, and as they looked upon the shoreline, there goes thousands of people running through the city streets to get to the desolate place. Apparently they knew where they were going because that particular crowd of people beat them there. Now, when they went ashore, he, Jesus, saw a great crowd. 15 to 20,000 people had gathered together at this point, scholars say. And of course, Jesus being Jesus, he had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, say it was late, Jesus' compassion has officially got in the way of rest and food. He got off the boat. The people are at the desolate place. He begins to teach them. Now it is late into the evening. They still haven't had any rest yet. They still haven't had anything to eat yet. Jesus is ministering to the crowd. And so the disciples, after it had grown late, his disciples came to him and said these words. This is a, there it is again, say it. This is a desolate place and the hour is now. You say it. Yes. And guess what? We still haven't had any rest or anything to eat. So Jesus, you should probably send away these people into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can buy themselves something to what? Eat, yeah, what were these disciples thinking about? Food, it was time to eat, they were starving. And Jesus says to them, <clears throat> you give them something to eat. Hmm? 
I thought that was part of the problem. Jesus like, we ain't got nothing to eat. You know, ironically, like I, I'm not filling in the white space there, being a little sarcastic. Scholars have kind of concluded by the language that is recorded in the Greek that they sarcastically replied with these words after Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, what are we supposed to do? Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Just so you know, one denarii was one day's labor wage. And so they're like, what do you want us to do? Spend more money than even what we have in order to go feed everybody that's here? What are we supposed to do? Send them away. Jesus says, no, 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 you're going to give them something to eat. And after they made that comment to them, Jesus responds and says, well, how many loaves do we have? And as the other gospels kind of articulate this story, you kind of get the picture of the disciples going out amongst the crowd. They find a young boy who had brought a craft Lunchable with him because he wasn't leaving home without lunch. You know what I'm saying? So he's got a lunchbox with him. He's got something to eat. This kid was smart. He wasn't taking a chance of following Jesus. He had followed his mom and dad to see Jesus before. And Jesus talked for a while until it was late. So he said, I'm bringing dinner with me this time. This boy brought enough for him to eat, which was five small barley loaves and two fish. And so the disciples, when, when Jesus said, well, how much do we have? The disciples come back and said, well, we have five small barley loaves and two fish. At this point, the, G, uh, the, the disciples have made clear to Jesus, like the limitations have been set, Jesus. As you can tell, the state of the union is there's not enough food to go around. There's not enough money to buy the food. So Jesus, let's go back to what we said originally and let's send them away to the villages so that they can get something to eat for themselves. Listen, it's, it's the love of God to let us clearly identify the limitations and weaknesses for ourselves, isn't it? It's his love to let us identify the fact that, well, this is an impossible situation so that when he does break through with the miracle, there will be no mistaking where the power came from, right? He had to let them realize that they had already come to the end of themselves, that there was no rational option available so that once they realized that, then he could do the big time kingdom God stuff and blow their minds. I imagine some of y'all came in here this morning and you have like run to the end of your rope and by all rational, practical purposes, there is no solution. It is the love of God to let you clearly identify the limitations in front of you so that he can show you just how big he is. That's good news. If you wouldn't have known that there was a limitation on every angle, you would have not known that it was the power of Jesus that came up with the solution along the way. Much to the shock of the disciples. Jesus doesn't agree with them and doesn't say, you, you know what, you're right. We've run out of options. Let's just send them on the way. When Jesus heard that they had five tiny biscuits and two fish, Jesus then commanded all the people, 20,000 people, he told them to sit down, say sit down. He told them to sit down in groups on the grass and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he lifted the basket up in the air and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples. He gave it to the who? He gave the loaves and the fish to the disciples to be set before the people. 
Now, let, let's stop right there for just a second. Like after the disciples have made the limitations clear to Jesus that there really is no rational way around this problem, Jesus then proceeds to do the unexpected and he tells the people to sit down. And so as these disciples are making their way through the crowd of 20,000 people, breaking them off into groups of hundreds and fifties, saying, the, the master Jesus, the rabbi, he, he told you to have a seat. Like what this meant in their culture to invite somebody to sit down was to create in them an expectation of food. If you invite somebody to sit down, then that's, that's the expectation that you're going to serve them a meal, which is a great idea because everybody's hungry, but there's a problem. There's no food to give. And if that wasn't confusing enough, Jesus takes what food there is, five small barley loaves and two fish, and he holds it up to heaven, and he says this very traditional Hebrew dinnertime prayer over these biscuits that would have said, went along something like this, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth, to which there would have been a resounding chorus of 20,000 people saying, Amen. but the bread didn't multiply. There's no extra fish. Jesus didn't snap his finger and create some staggering miracle that now there's enough food to hand out to everybody. A food truck did not pull up at that moment. Well, Jesus, what are you doing? You've created the anticipation of food with all these people, but there's no food to get. You even said a blessing over the biscuits and there's only five. There's 20,000 people out there. What are we supposed to do? What well, says that after he had blessed it, broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples, gave it to the who? Now the disciples are holding five biscuits and two fish that have now been broken up into 12 portions so that they're holding just fragments of this little lunch. After it was handed out to the disciples, they divided it amongst all the people and they all ate and they all were, what's that word? Satisfied. They didn't just get a morsel. Everyone had as much as they wanted to eat so that they were satisfied and content. And there's a couple of things that, a few things we need to notice from this moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Remember, I've said it a million times in this series and I'm gonna say it again today that every miracle ever that Jesus has ever done was never about the miracle itself. It's always been about the miracle maker himself. I know some of y'all still don't believe me, but I'm going to show you here. This is yet another thing. This is yet another moment in the ministry of Jesus. It was not about the miracle. Yeah, feeding the 5,000 was a pretty awesome miracle, but it wasn't about the miracle itself. It was about the miracle maker himself. Every miracle Jesus ever did then and every miracle Jesus ever does now, it's all about magnifying Jesus as Lord and King to draw our attention off the miracle to him. That's why he does it. So this is the first thing we need to notice and we probably wouldn't notice because we're not a part of their ancient Hebrew culture, but for an ancient Hebrew, 
that had grown up studying the Torah and had become resident scholars on the Old Testament. And they had based their lives on the life and leadership and law of Moses. For them to be sitting in a crowd of thousands of people in a desolate place and be told to sit down and break up into groups of 50s and 100 as they were given the anticipation that God was gonna provide a meal that did not yet exist, Every ancient Hebrew sitting in that crowd was supposed to be thinking to themselves, um, man, this is kind of like a whole lot like when Moses and the Israelites were in the desert. And they were in a desolate place and Jethro encouraged Moses to break them off into smaller groups and they asked God with anticipation to provide a meal and God brought manna from heaven. This is just like that. But Jesus is way better at this than Moses is. That was the point of the miracle. That was the whole point. And so that these ancient Hebrews that have been steeped in Judaism would now know that Jesus was the true and better Moses. Moses who they had followed for all of their family's history and they had been waiting with anticipation of the promised Messiah of God that he would finally come one day. This was the moment for them to see, man, Jesus is a lot like Moses, but so much better. He's the true and better Moses. The whole miracle was meant to turn their hearts from everything that they had ever known to know that Jesus was the promised one of God, that he had arrived and he was greater than anything that they had ever seen or heard of before. He is the one that every Old Testament patriarch modeled and was the archetype of, and he was the one that every Old Testament prophet of God had promised would come. Jesus was the one, the true and better Moses. Now, knowing that that didn't probably keep any of you awake last night, I gave that to you free of charge. And if you are Jewish today and you are listening, or you are here today, like this is one of the many places in the word of God that call you into understanding that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He's the one, he's the one. But not only that, this miracle that Jesus performed really has something to say into our own hearts and our own just ordinary rhythms of life. And I wanna start with this as the second thing I'm gonna mention to you this morning. I want you to notice that in the life and ministry of Jesus, that Jesus never asked you to bring enough. He asked you to bring what you have and he will make it enough. I don't know who needs to hear this little piece this morning, but Jesus never asked you to bring enough. He asked you to bring what you have and he will make it enough. I just spoke to the Jews just a second ago. Let me speak to some of you that have been trying to be enough. You've been trying to live up to the holy standard of God and work your way into the good graces of God. You've been trying to become enough. But the reality, the word of God declares to us over and over again, Hosea and Isaiah and Ezekiel tell the, his, Israel that like they are a wicked and adulterous bride. Isaiah says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Like we are never enough. Paul tells us in Romans that we have fallen short of the glory of God, not by a few inches, but by a million miles. And Jesus shows us in this miracle I'm not asking for you to be enough. I'm asking for you to bring every piece of you as insufficient as it may be. And I'm gonna make you enough, but I'm gonna do more than enough through you. 
Somebody need to hear that story this morning. It reminds me, <coughs> yeah, glory to God. It reminds me 2 Corinthians uh, when Jesus spoke to the apostle Paul in a vision and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, but Jesus said to me these powerful words, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Not in the stuff you're good at, not when you really hit it out of the park. That's not when Jesus is most clearly on display. Jesus says, my power, when I am most clearly on display, when my authority is most evident in the world around you, it's made perfect in your weaknesses. Your insufficiency, you're not quite enough. That's when my power is made perfect in you. For those of you that would trust in me and believe in me and abide in me and bring to me, you're not enough. I can make it enough and I can make it more than enough, not just for you, but for the people around you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul turns around and says, therefore, Grace Bible, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You want the power of Christ to rest upon you? Bring your weaknesses before the Lord regularly. Bring to them, bring them to God as an act of worship to him. And the power of Christ rests Upon you. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. Another word that fits in right there in their language is I can rest. I can rest with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities because I know that when I am weak, I am strong. That's good news. That's the word of the Lord for you this morning to be reminded through the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus never asks us to bring enough, He just asks us to bring what we have and he will make it enough. It's one thing for us in our lives, for the most devout of you that are in this room today, it's, it's one thing for you to bring to the Lord that which you know is useful. And the most devout, those of you that are like serious about walking with the Lord and joining your life to the life of Jesus and committing to allow him to use your life, I would bet you that most of our prayers probably resonate something along the lines of, Lord, here's what I have that's good and working and useful and helpful. Use it for your glory. Lord, I've got a gift. I'm good at talking, so use it for your glory. Lord, you've gifted me as a great teacher, so use my classroom for your glory. Lord, you've given me, given me some great business skills and wisdom, so use my acumen and my business for your glory. Most of us are quick to bring our strengths to the table, but... And that's beautiful, and trust me, the Lord is going to use those because he equipped you with those, and he wants to use those for his glory and for his ministry and that the world might know that he is Lord and King, but it's an altogether different prayer to come before the Lord and present to him our barley loaves of not quite enough and never going to be good enough and weakness and insecurity and insufficiency, and I don't even know what to do with this brokenness and weakness and sadness and horror that I'm experiencing in my life. What if we brought those things to him? I told you it's the love of God to let us clearly be able to identify what our limitations are so that we would know that when he steps in to be the hero of the day, we would know where that power came from. He wants to do the same thing in every weakness and insecurity and barley loaf in your life. Everything that you haven't thought to bring to God because it's too broken. It's just not useful. I really, I, I pray about it because I want God to fix it, but there's not, not anything that I can like give to him out of that. How could he use that? 
I wonder what would happen if you tried. I wonder what would happen if we started laying our weaknesses down at the altar of the Lord saying, you know what, this is a really broken place in me and I don't know what to do about it, but I know you do. So I want you to take this barley loaf in my life and I want you to feed the 5,000 with it. You know, Elizabeth Elliot put it like this. She said, if the only this that you have is to offer your broken heart of all things, then you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that even this is material for sacrifice has been a great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing that I am will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus the five loaves and the two fish. And with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? But the point is, the use he makes of it is his blessing. He can redeem even the most broken places in you for his glory. Grace Bible. I want you to remember when you look at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's a reminder to us that he never asked you to bring enough. He just asked you to bring what you got. He'll make it enough. His grace is sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, gladly boast in those weaknesses that the power of Christ might rest upon you. Grace Bible. You get the picture, you hear the love story of Jesus. Who do you say that he is? I think we are learning who he is. That's not the only thing I wanted you to see. The, another thing that we need to see in this, and this one's fun because we talk about this all the time here at GBC, but we see it really come to life in the ministry of Jesus in this moment when he performs this incredible, incredible miracle on the shoreline with barely enough lunch and he feeds tons and tons of people for his glory. I want you to catch this, that God delights in using ordinary people to be distributors of his extraordinary work. Let that soak in your heart for just a second. God delights, say delights. Can you imagine like God delighting in you? Taking delight when he thinks about you and when he sees you. Like God delights and using ordinary people to be distributors of his extraordinary work. This also reminds me of a place in 2 Corinthians when the apostle Paul teaches us in chapter four, starting in verse seven, going through verse 10. The apostle Paul says to us, but we have this treasure, say treasure, <clears throat> but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what is the treasure? If you read the context of this, the treasure is the gospel of God. The power and authority of God displayed through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about the big picture of it. The past, present, and future ramifications of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his words in our life. This treasure that is the greatest thing God has ever given us. It's a treasure. It's a prize to him. And it's a prize to us. The gospel and all of its power. He says that this treasure has been placed in the most ornate, impressive, expensive, and desirable jars in town? No, 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 jars of clay. What's the jars of clay? It's us. He's placed this treasure, the power of the gospel, in these jars of clay for this reason, to show 
that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because he delights in using ordinary people to be distributors of his extraordinary work. He put treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us because we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. That sounds like a pretty tattered up jar of clay to me. Perplexed, tattered, beaten, crushed. That sounds like jars with a lot of cracks. Jars that could tell a story. Jars that quite honestly in the marketplace would be easily just walked by and not noticed because they have no value in and of themselves. They've been through too much. They've been beaten up too hard. But the word of God reminds us that God placed his treasure in the jars of clay. We're reminded in this moment as we were when Jesus did the feeding of the 5,000 that the value of the clay has nothing to do with the condition of the jar. The value of the clay had everything to do with what was in it. This treasure doesn't matter how broken down and beaten the jar was, God had placed his most valuable treasure in it. We flip back to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and in this really cool moment where Jesus shows us that he delights in using ordinary people to be the distributors of his extraordinary work. We see this incredible picture of Jesus blessing the food Handing it out to 12 disciples. Now he's taken five loaves and two fish and split it 12 ways. He handed it to the disciples and then he sent them out to be distributors of next to nothing, a handful of nothing. Can you imagine the faith that it took for those disciples to be looking at Jesus, hearing him do the dinner prayer, and then thinking, okay, I don't know what rabbit he's got in the hat this time, but when he said amen and 20,000 people said amen in agreement, no food truck pulled up and the bread didn't multiply staggeringly all of a sudden, he actually breaks the bread and the fish down into smaller pieces 12 ways, hands it to the disciples and says, all right, now go feed them. But amazingly... As they began to walk through the crowd of 20,000 people, they kept giving it out, but it never ran out. Because the miracle was materializing in the hand of the giver. This was a moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the first time we've seen in the book of Mark where he didn't do the miracle independently. Usually Jesus does the miracle and everybody stands by watching, including the disciples and says, oh my gosh. Did he just do that? But on this particular miracle, he did it through his disciples. And they continued to hand bread out and they never ran out. And it got all the way to the point by the end, everybody was satisfied. They had eaten so much. But there was a second miracle that was taking place. It wasn't just the miracle of the multiplication of bread so that everybody could eat. You see, while the physical miracle was taking place in their hand, 
a spiritual miracle was taking place in their heart as they were seeing God not just work in them but work through them and they didn't know how it was happening. They were just trusting as they went from crowd to crowd, group to group, continuing to hand out food. And we never see in the story where the disciples turn back around and look at Jesus and said, hey, we're still tired and we still haven't eaten. What about us? Because as a miracle was happening in their hand, a miracle was happening in their heart, and they miraculously forgot about themselves. You know that old hymn that tells us, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Something happens when the follower of Jesus joins their life to Jesus and trusts him to do more than they could ever ask or imagine. Something happens, a miracle in our own heart where we begin to join him in the mission and forget about ourselves. Oh, and they all ate and they were satisfied too, by the way, but all of a sudden what was started out being about them was not about them anymore. But it took identifying their limitations and recognizing that they didn't have the power to resolve the solution. Are you there this morning? It took trust in Jesus, even though what he was saying was just preposterous. This can't possibly work. Never seen anything like this before. It's amazing how five loaves in the hands of men are always insufficient, but you put those same five loaves in the hand of God and it's more than enough. I don't know what loaves you're holding in your heart this morning trying to figure out how God's gonna make enough out of it for your life where you're waiting on him and you're struggling and you're waiting on the authority of God to step in and be the hero of the story. But I wanna remind you as, with a quick brush over this, this next little piece is, is just for you. After they cleaned up from dinner that night, it's late. Jesus tells them to gather up all the extra bread and they end up with 12 baskets full of it. Okay, how many disciples were there? How many baskets of extra miracle bread did they have? And then Jesus immediately tells his disciples to get on the boat. It's nighttime again. We said, we don't travel at night on the Sea of Galilee. He tells them to get in the boat with the 12 baskets, immediately tells the disciples to go before him on the other side to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out at the sea and he was alone on the land. But he looked and he saw the disciples, they were struggling, making headway painfully because another storm had come up. You ever heard about this happening before? This time Jesus wasn't in the boat. He had stayed back on shore. Jesus looks out over the water and he sees the storm hit them and they're struggling to move forward to go where Jesus told them to go and they're fighting for their lives. And about the fourth watch of the night, early, early, early in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. Remember the story of Jesus walking on the water? This is it. So Jesus just kind of walks out in the storm, by the way. It's not like glass, as if walking on glass water is any easier than stormy water. He just walks across the water. And his game plan, interestingly enough, is he meant to pass by them. He was just going to go ahead and beat them to the other side. But instead, they saw him walking on the sea and thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. They were terrified, for they all saw him. They were terrified. But 
Immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Of course it did, because that's what happens when Jesus steps in the boat. And they were utterly astounded as if they hadn't experienced that before. Utterly astounded. For they, th- but this is what they were astounded about. For they did not understand about the loaves. If you're not paying attention, you would miss that the whole Jesus walking on the water scene was about the miracle that he had just performed on land. And the disciples were still reeling from this. You know, it's interesting, like, for those of us that are in that struggle, and we're trying to trust God, and we're not sure what to do next. It's, it's so interesting how they were just satisfied. And then fast forward a couple hours, and now they're terrified. Had they, had they forgotten in just that short a time what God had just done in their life? And just to make sure they didn't forget about the miracle working hand of Jesus, he went ahead and put 12 baskets of miracle bread in the boat, not so they could eat, but so that all 12 of them had a basket to look at and be reminded of his faithfulness. You know, I... The longer I've done this, now being in vocational ministry for 14 years, the more I've realized that 90% of the work of discipleship is really just the ministry of reminding. That's what I do every Sunday. I'm just reminding you of the promises of God. I'm just reminding you of the hope that we have in him. I'm just reminding you of the finished work of Jesus and the work of discipleship that you share and we share in one another's lives as we are going and making disciples while we are going everywhere we live, work and play, like it's the ministry of reminding. Peter said it's stirring one another up by way of reminder, pointing back to Jesus. You know, sometimes the best place to find the faith to move forward in a hard situation is to look back over your shoulder and be reminded where God has always been faithful. Sometimes the faith you need to take a step forward is to take a look back. Are you like the disciples going from satisfied to terrified? Just like that because you've forgotten the faithfulness of God behind you and you're wondering how in the world he's gonna fix the situation in front of you. I wanna encourage you to look back this morning The same reason why Jesus put 12 baskets of miracle bread on the boat to remind them of what he had already done. It's the same reason I want to implore you and encourage you to be reminded of the faithfulness of God throughout the story of your life. Let's pray about that. Lord, I pray that the voice of your spirit would remind our hearts in a very deep and real way today of your kindness and faithfulness and your worthiness and your more than enoughness. And God, I pray that you would continue to beckon us to bring our not enough so that you could prove yourself strong and faithful in our lives again. I pray that you would remind us to look back over our shoulders and remember the faithfulness of God as we're trying to trust him for the next thing. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, may this group continue to remain content and rest despite the hardship and trial and peril they may be staring at 
because they know that as the power of Christ is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, stand guard our hearts, continue to minister to our souls, continue to draw us up into a growing relationship with you and with one another. And Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you even invite us, invite us into this incredible miracle story of being friends and family with God. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.